Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent New York City's Lefty newspaper and website. You can find our December January print edition in our red and white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries and in other public venues across the city. You can also find our latest news coverage at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G, and also on Indie Twitter and Instagram. My co-host, Amr Gagarian, is off today. For today's show, we're going to uh, we're going to take a look at the continued surge of pro-Palestine protests in New York City. The holiday break is over, and people are back in the streets demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and an end to the U.S. support for Israel. On Saturday, there were protests in Ridgewood, Queens, in Little Yemen, in the Bronx, and outside the Lincoln Center. In a few minutes, we'll go to a couple of the organizers of Saturday's protest in Ridgewood. But first, we start with Yesterday's shutdown of lower Manhattan traffic by pro-Palestinian protesters who made national headlines when they blocked inbound traffic on the Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Williamsburg bridges and outbound traffic at the Holland Tunnel on the west side of Manhattan. These are some of the protesters chanting at the Holland Tunnel blockade. By day's end, at least 325 protesters would be arrested. That was footage gathered yesterday by indie associate editor Amba Gagarian. I spoke with Amba a little while ago about yesterday's action in lower Manhattan and started by asking her to describe uh, what unfolded uh, yesterday morning in lower Manhattan as she witnessed it. And this action appeared to take the NYPD by surprise. Sure. So activists at 9.30 from a coalition of groups totaling around a 1,000 spread across uh, four different locations began to blockade uh, all lower Manhattan bridges. So the Manhattan, the Brooklyn, and the Williamsburg Bridge is as well as the outbound Holland Tunnel. And that included, you know, uh, three entryways to that and then the main entrance. Uh, so there were many activists blockading these areas. The blockades lasted uh, anywhere from about an hour and a half to two hours, the longest one being at the Holland Tunnel. And that's where I was. So I don't have firsthand information from the bridge blockades, um, but I was there at the Holland Tunnel full, full Holland Tunnel for a while and there were at, at least 120 arrestees from all the different entrances to the tunnel being amassed near the tunnel you know which took about 45 minutes to an hour so that in itself you know the blockade was not allowed to last by the police for two hours the blockades were allowed to last for about an hour while the police scrambled to get all their guys in line and their calls it seems like they did not know about this the police were not tipped off or you know their intelligence did not find out about this so it took them a while to scramble and then to actually arrest everybody. And while they're doing that, they still block off the bridges and the tunnels. So effectively for around... So they joined your a- the action. 
Yeah, the cops joined the action. Um, no, no, they didn't. They shut it down. But the, how long it took them to get organized and shut it down did help. So, so those main, uh, main, you know, entry and exits to Manhattan were blocked at a pivotal time. Lower Manhattan saw a total gridlock. Um, I was trying to take a cab actually from the Holland Tunnel on the west side over to the Manhattan, uh, bridge on the east side. And I couldn't, you know, the, I couldn't, it was completely gridlocked. The, the car wasn't moving. I got out of the car and got on a bike. Um, and there were, so there were arrests made at three locations, actually, at the Williamsburg Bridge, at the Brooklyn Bridge, and obviously at the Holland Tunnel. The Manhattan Bridge activists were not arrested because the police there threatened them with a misdemeanor, which is a higher offense than the uh, disorderly conduct. And the disorderly conduct that uh, activists usually get for uh, blocking traffic and for protesting in the streets. And so they chose, they elected to walk down out of that. But I saw that at the Brooklyn Bridge, we had a photographer over there, Laura Brett. And she, uh, you know, showed us that the people's hands in the pipeline, they were like... Um, chained hand to hand with a pipeline around their hands. And then two of those pipelines, the central ones in the middle of the protesters was actually cemented into a tire. And it was like effective. Like it took a lot longer for the cops to deal with that. So, you know, that's what I witnessed. Obviously a lot of anger, but also solidarity, people honking in solidarity. Um, it's New York, baby. (laughs) And, uh, it's not easy uh, getting around Gaza right now either. Oh, it's not easy getting around Gaza. And I think, you know, whether it was intentional or not, the activists did a great job of creating that effect, you know, and hopefully some people who were stuck in their cars um, thought about that, you know, uh, of being trapped somewhere and not being able to go where you want. Yeah, whether it's because you're going to get bombed or because there's a bunch of trash and dead bodies of humans and animals in the street or because there's activists blockading your way. Yes. Uh, so I. Uh, can can you elaborate on uh, a little bit more uh, why the protesters uh, felt like uh, they needed to take this action? Right, and this I'll escalation. Add- Right, and I'll add too that the the protesters was really an amalgam of groups: the DSA, the Palestinian Youth Movement, Wawag Writers Against the War on Gaza, um, the J. Fred's Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and definitely want to shout out to JVPNY Jews for uh, Jewish Voice for Peace because that's a that's a big group. And out of all of them, uh, somewhere between three hundred and four hundred were arrested. So they really sacrificed a lot, and it was to, of course, call for a ceasefire, but also amplify the Palestinian Youth Movement five main demands um, around Palestine and Gaza right now, which is an immediate ceasefire, an end to the siege on Gaza, the release of all Palestinian prisoners, of which there are at least 7,000, an end to the occupation of Palestine, and an end to the U.S. aid to Israel. So it was to, uh, you know, say a ceasefire, but also free Palestine. Um, and I think the timing of it was significant because we've seen an amplification, you know, um, uh, a rising in the level of intensity of these protests, you know, on October 14th or October 20th, there were many protests and more people than there are now willing to protest in the streets, but they were, we were doing street protests and things that were less disruptive and no demands were heard. Biden continues to give as much money to Israel as it wants to kill Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank. And, um, and people have had it. And so no change is happening. So they stopped marching in the sidewalks and they went to the streets and they stopped marching in front of, you know, representatives windows who have done nothing. And they went to block the traffic to have their demands be heard. Right. Uh, we saw a similar Escalation. action recently. Sorry to interrupt you, John. 
But in a moment of desperation, also because it's amplifying the calls from Gaza, which are, if you're following any Gazan journalists, they're, you know, disheartened more than ever by the world's response. Right. So they saw a tangible act of solidarity in lower Manhattan yesterday. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, I can't help but think, uh, you know, for, for drivers who were angered and people who may have actually missed, you know, something important they needed to get to, uh, that their anger should be more directed at our government. We have a situation where roughly two thirds of the public has been supporting a ceasefire now for months and, and very few people in, in Congress and no one of any stature in the White House is responding to this. So we have a, a breakdown in representative democracy. That's the underlying uh, issue here. And uh, we know um, APAC, the American uh, Israel Public Affairs Committee, has essentially bought off most of Congress uh, over the years to engineer this kind of uh, uh, roadblock to uh, the government responding to what people want. Uh, so, No pun intended. <laughs> right. Yeah, the the original roadblock. It is true, but what you're saying is that that kind of action, or what you're not saying, but what you did say, is that that kind of action leads to these literal roadblocks or blockades. Like right. what you're saying, right, is that, you know, people shouldn't be so frustrated at the activists, but of the inertia of a government to not support a genocide. Correct? You bet. So uh, before you have to go here, Amba, uh, there's also been a, 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 n- a number of uh, uh, more neighborhood-level protests that have been happening throughout the city uh, since this war began, including this weekend. On Saturday, there were protests in the Bronx um, and also in Ridgewood, Queens, led by the Ridgewood Tenants Union. Uh, you covered uh, that protest, uh, and uh, we're going to talk in a few minutes with a couple of organizers from the Ridgewood Tenants Union uh, about why they organized a protest for Palestine on Saturday. But in your coverage you had the chance to talk with some of the bystanders who watched the march go by. And I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of your article. Uh, can you just offer us a, a couple of highlights uh, from that? And then we can, people can read the rest of your article on independent.org. Yeah, absolutely. So there has been a continued outpouring of support for Gaza for Palestinians for free Palestine. Like you said, there were thousands in the Bronx and Little Yemen. There were also at least a thousand in the snow that night, Saturday night at the Lincoln Center, blockading the Lincoln Center um, because they have close ties to Israel. And there was out in Ridgewood, Queens and Maspeth, uh, the Ridgewood Tenants Union protest, which we'll hear more about. But what I was noticing at that protest, because I go to a lot of protests and, you know, sometimes it's just a protest down the streets, bystanders. Some support, some might yell, but the level of emotion that I noticed by the onlookers was kind of unignorable. Um, I noticed, honestly, multiple, multiple elderly people from different backgrounds weeping, weeping, and, and I spoke to them and it was all sort of on the support side. I'm sad of what's going on and I've moved to see these people, you know, kind of like being able to protest. And a lot of people talked about the protesters acting out their freedom. And one man, I was really touched by what he said. You know, he was out there very emotional. He's been very emotional about the whole conflict. And he was outside a 77 year old Argentinian man called Pablo Hugo smoking his cigarette in Queens as the, as the March went by. And he said, you know, if a country that I loved so much was experiencing this, I would do it. I would be out in the street. And I think that people just need to, like, maybe sit with that more because I think we might all do that. Right. Well, people can read uh, the 
entirety of your article, Ridgewood Rises Up for Palestine on independent.org. Uh, it's the top article on our website uh, right now. Uh, Indy Associate Editor Amir Gagarian, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Great to be with you. Talk to you soon. And again, that was the Independence, Amber Gagarian, speaking uh, to us here on WBAI 99.5 FM. When we come back uh, after a short break, we'll speak with two organizers from the Ridgewood Tenants Union uh, who helped organize a pro-Palestine protest in Ridgewood, Queens on Saturday. They say there is a connection between the mass displacement of longtime residents in their neighborhood and that of Palestinians who continue to be forced off of their ancestral lands by Israel. Born under siege, a place where you can't leave. Smoke's in the air, so it makes it hard to breathe. I need my family, protect them from the disease. I went to chase my dreams, hoping that they rescue me. Made it out the maze, God's been blessing me. First time in LA, got guys next to me. It's in my heart, it's in my veins. I've been smiling at the pain. The bombs lit up the night sky and turned them into days. Hard to come up with the right rhymes. I don't know what to say, I start to cry. When I write mine, it happens every day. A lot of death in my lifetime. All I do is pray, this is my story from the sideline. This life is not a game. I want to call my mama, I hope she charge the phone, hope my brother's not alone, hope that one day they'll be grown, this is genocide, but this time it is televised, don't believe all that you see, cause they be telling lies, I call my blessings, not the problems, from the bottom where the robbers acting violent, killing toddlers, bombing us with helicopters, they see me on that TV and they calling me the monster, that only makes me strong against the world, so I do it for the world, That was Let It Rain by 15-year-old Gazan rapper MC Abdul. You're listening to the Independent News Hour here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper. Uh, before we continue on to our next guest, just want to remind people that uh, today is as good a day as any to give to WBAI. Our uh, listener-sponsored community radio station here in New York, uh, now in its 64th year of broadcasting. Uh, when you go to 212-209-2950 or give number two WBAI.org and make a contribution, you help keep this unique radio station on the air. Uh, your donations help pay for the, uh, the, the uh, antenna and the transmitter at four times square. Help, uh, help us keep the office open for WBAI and all the other expenses, uh, this station, uh, has to cover. And it, the station does run on a very tight budget, but it still needs support of listeners like yourself, uh, 212-209-2950. Or you can call, uh, go online, give number two, WBAI.org and pull out the plastic and, uh, make your contribution, uh, that way. If you become a WBAI buddy, for as little as $10 a month, you get all sorts of excellent uh, premiums and, and benefits from that. And, of course, you 
get the satisfaction of helping support this station uh, every month when uh, you make your automatic deduction as a WBAI buddy. Um, but however you do it, whether you call at 212-209-2950 or go to um, give number two WBAI.org, uh, it makes all the difference. Uh, as someone uh, who's responsible for a lot of the fundraising at, at The Independent, uh, we also uh, really have to hustle to raise money to cover our budget. So I know how hard it is to keep uh, a grassroots media operation uh, like WBAI or like The Independent uh, going and every single contribution uh, makes a huge difference. And it's just uh, greatly appreciated knowing uh, that you support uh, the work uh, that those of us at The Independent or WBAI are doing day in and day out, uh, month after month, every year. So uh, I will uh, give the number out again a little later in the show. And thank you for uh, wanting to support uh, this station. So we uh, now return to the surge of pro-Palestine protests in New York City. On Saturday, the Ridgewood Tenants Union led a thousand-person march that highlighted the displacement experienced in both rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods like Ridgewood in Queens and by Palestinians at the hands of Israeli settlers. Joining us now to talk about Saturday's protests and more are two organizers from the Ridgewood Tenants Union, uh, Raquel Namuche and Lamise Beydoun. Raquel and Lamise, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have both of you uh, uh, with us uh, this evening. Uh, so uh, first question is uh, for both of you, uh, which is quite simply, if you can elaborate on why you all felt it was important uh, to hold this protest on Saturday uh, for Palestine as a tenant union in Ridgewood. Uh, Raquel, maybe you start, and then Lamise, if you want to chime in. Or maybe Lamise, sorry. <laughs> or however you all want to do it. <laughs> I think Lamise could perfectly... Um... So, yeah, go ahead, Lamise, because, um, you know, Lamise is someone who has been enthusiastically um, organizing with our group. We have a subgroup. Uh, we call it Richwood for Palestine. Yeah, I think um, uh, a lot of members of the RTU and in the Richwood community at large just really wanted to uh, move in solidarity with Palestine and show our support from Ridgewood. And then that kind of snowballed into an idea of directly, you know, uh, drawing the connections between forced displacement in Ridgewood and abroad and, you know, in Palestine. Um, and then I also think it was about um, letting the more conservative groups of our neighborhood know that the support for Palestine is loud in Ridgewood and is unwavering and, um, you know, strong. Great. And, and um, Raquel, can you talk about how uh, other uh, tenant groups and tenant activists uh, around the city are also embracing uh, Palestine and, and Palestinian uh, support protests? Yeah, I will say that, you know, every time I go to a direct action being organized by, you know, groups throughout the city, I always see members of various tenant unions involved, right? Um, like in yesterday's action, there were various members from RTU involved, um, from various, um, other autonomous tenant unions. 
And I think that's one way we've all been involved since day one. We're all engaging in direct action in solidarity with Palestine. Um, and in Richwood, we really wanted to give people an outlet, you know, others who aren't involved with RTU necessarily, an outlet to understand that, like Lemmy said, we have an unwavering support uh, for Palestine and we want the siege to end. And we saw at our march that many of our neighbors feel the same way. And it's one of the things that really moved us. You know, we were marching down Fresh Pond Avenue, which is like one of our busiest corridors, and there were women crying there were fathers with their kids waving at us in support and it was really beautiful to see yeah and um can you uh, just give a a a little bit more of a description of of ridgewood who lives there the the demographics uh etc for uh, our listeners who may not have uh, ventured out to that corner of queens before Yes, for sure. So I, I will say that a lot of people might not realize that Richwood is actually fairly diverse. It is almost 50% people of color um, with a high foreign-born population. Unfortunately, our neighborhood is very conservative. You know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there is a very organized and militant landlord movement here who would block funds for public housing to come into our district, right? Because they were blocking affordable public housing from being built. Um, And these became, they were like our taxpayer associations, and then they became our civic and homeowners associations. And these are the same stakeholders still dictating what happens in our neighborhood in Ridgewood. Mm. And and, uh, uh, Lamise, anything else you want to add about uh, the neighborhood you call home? Um, I think Raquel put it really, really well. Um, I think I didn't realize um, just how much Palestinian support ran through this neighborhood until our march, until we saw everybody's reaction. Um, I was worried that the, con- the more like conservative voices was- were going to be a lot louder. Um, so I was happy about that. And I right. think, and, yeah, and, no, I think, oh, yeah. sorry, John. Go on. No, no, I just want to say that like, you know, one thing, another thing that people wouldn't realize is that we have um, a lot of Yemeni um, deli owners who were actually so in support of our march, even as we geared up to the day. Owners uh, were telling us, yes, you can put blast, uh, pl- plaster your flyer wherever you want. And I think sort of like leading up to the march, we were really inspired by how people were standing in solidarity with us. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how many uh, delis and bodegas are run by uh, Yemenis here in New York, sort of the stealth uh, superpower. Um, so, uh, uh, Raquel, can you uh, describe a little bit more sort of the, the luxury development that's moved into Ridgewood over the last decade uh, since you all started a Ridgewood Tenant Union and what that's uh, uh, been like as far as confronting that? It's been difficult, right? Because these are finance forces that want to dictate who lives here and who doesn't. And so organizing against that is a challenge, but it's not impossible, right? We always say you can undo gentrification, and that's what we try to do with um, RTU. We we organize so that we are able to fight displacement um, with our neighbors. And so one of the ways that we've seen our neighborhood change you know in the last 15 years is 
more private equity coming into the neighborhood. Of course, a lot of speculation who um, drive out long-term working-class tenants. And that is why we wanted to highlight in our march um, that there's, you know, you know, all these forces are out there. And I think two examples from our march are our stops at Rolos, which is a new restaurant that opened up during the pandemic um, that is housed in a building owned by one of the landlords that we say is a huge symbol of how the gentrification has impacted working class tenants here in New York City. Um, his name is Kermit Westergaard. They own several properties in the neighborhood. He is essentially, we say, curing the neighborhood to fit his vision. And that vision does not include immigrant and working class tenants, unfortunately. And then the other point of our march where we stopped was uh, close to Richwood Tower, which is a development um that has uh, been in the works since 2015. And it's a 17-story luxury tower that has now been constructed, not fully completed yet, but it's still, you know, it's still in the works. And this is a development that we, since 2015, have been saying would be unsafe for our community, would drive people out. Um, and I think we were, we were fairly correct in that, um, in during the pandemic, one of the workers who was building the tower died, unfortunately, because of the unsafe conditions in the construction site. Mm. And, and at your protest on Saturday, a, a lot of the people who participated in it uh, were uh, younger white gentrifiers, essentially, who've moved into the neighborhood in recent years. Uh, how do you respond to people who say, wait a minute, how can you be protesting gentrification when you have People like this in your organization and in your uh, in your protest marches. Uh, uh, can you uh, address that? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe Lemis can definitely back me up in this. I think we both see the same things happening, right? There's a lot of newer newer people moving into the neighborhood. There's a lot of newcomers. Um, but we're all feeling the same pressures, right? Working class tenants alike are all feeling the same pressure. And, you know, one of the things that we believe in and with, with our group is that we don't want to create a narrative of us versus them because we've all got to come together to fight back against finance capital, right? That is driving all of us out. Um, all kinds of people hit us up all the time saying, Hey, my rent is being jacked up by 200, 500. Or being doubled, right? And that is immigrant or immigrant undocumented neighbors alike, just like the um, white newcomers um, into the neighborhood. Yeah, and I would just add that as long as these, you know, gentrifiers are are coming into our neighborhoods, um, the least we can do is put them to work to mobilize them and to, um, you know, make sure that they are. Um, doing something for the neighborhood. Right. They can try to be more a part of the solution than the problem. Exactly. Right. And, and another aspect of gentrification uh, frequently is uh, more intensified uh, policing uh, real estate interests when they're trying to uh, jack up the rents. They want to make sure their sort of new high value tenants feel completely uh, uh, comfortable and, and will often, uh, urge the mayor and the police commissioner to, you know, have more uh, boots on the ground, as it were, in a neighborhood. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? And, and then sort of the, the, the much more uh, 
aggressive and violent version of that that we see uh, in uh, places like the West Bank in Palestine, where you have uh, settlements that get set up and the um, occupation accompanies them. Yeah, I mean, I think we we think colonial exploitation right manifests in all kinds of ways. Unfortunately, I think in our neighborhood, one of the ways that we see it is that we there's more stops right from cops. Um, there are studies that show that in gentrifying neighborhoods, there are definitely more stops and more arrests made of people of color. And one of the things that I personally have noticed in Richwood, and I've lived here now nearly twenty years. Um, is that in the, in the last, uh, five years where I've seen more and more, um, gut renovations in buildings and like more like fancy boutiques and cafes opening up, I've also seen more NYPD surveillance cameras popping up on street corners. Like there's one right across, like one outside my street. And you wouldn't think that like they would, Put one on Summerfield and Seneca, where I live, right? Um, and maybe I shouldn't say my cross streets on the radio, but um, <laughs> um, block but party, block, yeah, block party at Raquel's uh, block. But you know, it's true. Like you wouldn't think it, but like around where I live is like one of the hubs in Richwood that is quickly gentrifying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And Lamisa, uh, before we have to go here, I. I you're uh, a child of uh, Lebanese immigrants who came to this country, and we just recently saw a really chilling comment from uh, Israel's uh, defense minister, or maybe more accurately, war minister, uh, Yoav Gallant, one of the top figures in that government, uh, uh, saying that if, if uh, you know, Hezbollah d- doesn't back down and uh, do what Israel uh, says it should, uh, that Israel could carry out a cut and paste uh, on Beirut, uh, just uh, replicating what they did to Gaza City, which was completely uh, obliterated and kill uh, many thousands of people. Uh, y- your reaction to that? And what's your sense you're uh, hearing from Lebanon about how people are uh, feeling about this situation right now? Um, you know, I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, different Israeli officials have been making comments just like that um, since the early weeks of the war. Um, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, Israel has, as long as its inception, been a threat to all the neighboring countries. Um, and of course, Israel occupied parts of southern Lebanon and has been bombing southern Lebanon, um, since October 7th. Um, so I think like that is why we, or at least I see the Palestinian struggle as uh, my struggle um, because we have a common enemy. Um, and um, the second part of your question in terms of like how we feel, I mean, I think a lot of the people in Lebanon are kind of in this like cyclical relationship with this type of violence where we see it come up over and over again. Right. Like, this is not new to Lebanon. A lot of people in Beirut can expect um, any day that Israel will bomb them or do something. And it's um, really a testament to their um, strength that they are to the resilience that like, despite that threat, they keep going and, you know, continue to um, reject this colonial entity and, 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's, uh, I mean, I think we're all wondering what's going to happen next. Um, so we're going to have to wrap up here in a sec, but, uh, um, Raquel, uh, can you tell us more about where people can find out information, uh, regarding the Ridgewood Tenants Union? Um, yeah, on our Instagram, just Richwood Tenants Union, we will, you know, this year we promise to have a functional website. Um, I also just want to shout out all the amazing, powerful groups that were there with us on Saturday because um, there are various folks from all over the city. Um, Mexicanos Unidos was there and spoke, Crown Heights Tenants Union. Um, both of our tenant unions uh, were founded around the same time in 2013, 2014, um, and we're close allies and all fighting together against displacement in New York City, uh, Brooklyn Eviction Defense. Um Housing, youth movement, um, all kinds of amazing groups. And if you all go to our Instagram, you'll see a nice little recap of our march. Great. And of course, we have uh, uh, Amba Gagarian's uh, reporting on independent.org. Uh, Pal- uh, Ridgewood rises up for Palestine. Um, just one other an- announcement. Uh, uh, we've been in touch uh, with Jackie from the Ridgewood Tenants Union, who is going to help us set up one of our outdoor news boxes near the Seneca Ave subway station on uh, Myrtle, Myrtle, Myrtle Ave. And um, I, I know other members of the Tenants Union are going to help uh, look out for that box. And uh, we look forward to bringing more copies of the Independent to Ridgewood every month. Nice. And uh, I thank <laughs> both of you, Raquel uh, Nubuche and Lamis Bedun, for joining us on the Independent News Hour. Thank you, John. Thank you always, John. We love the independent. Yay. All right. (laughs) Great. We'll be back with more after this short break. That was Seeds of Freedom by Manu Chow. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. My co-host, Amir Gagarian, is away tonight. Uh, uh, following up on the end of our last conversation with the Ridgewood Tenants Union, when I mentioned they're going to be uh, uh, watching one of our new boxes out in Ridgewood, uh, we have our news boxes sprinkled around the city uh, where we put papers uh, each month. If you want to uh, watch over one of our boxes in your neighborhood, 
Uh, you can contact us at uh, contact at independent.org. Again, that's contact at independent.org. If you want to job, join our box steward program, it's a very, uh, not a too difficult job. It's basically just making sure the box uh, stays neat and orderly. The copy, the display copy is remains in the window, things like that. Uh, and uh, again, you can contact us at contact at independent.org if you want to become a box steward for the independent. Now let's talk about WBAI for just one minute. Uh, this station always needs your support. Uh, you can call 212-209-2950 right now. Make a donation, uh, uh, whether it's $25, $50, $100, it, It's a new year. Let's get the station off to a fast start in 2024. You can also go online to give number two, WBAI.org, and become a, a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. This is a great way to give the station uh, the financial stability from month to month uh, that it really needs. Uh, the WBAI buddies, um, the many hundreds of people doing that are uh, really uh, a key bedrock of this station. You can uh, sign up to become a buddy for $10, $15, $25 a month, uh, whatever you can do. Give number two, WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. When you give to the station, uh, you not only keep us on the air, but you're helping make shows like this available to all the other listeners, uh, some of whom maybe can't afford to give. But if you can't afford to give, please call 212-209-2950 or go to give number two wbaiorg right now. All right, we've got one more segment for you today. Uh, in our current issue of The Independent, we have a beautiful cover story uh, uh, called Inside Little Palestine. It's the closest thing to their homeland for New York City's Palestinian diaspora. Uh, this uh, cover article was written by the Indies' Laura Noor Walton. She's Egyptian-American, uh, spent part of her childhood in uh, growing up in Cairo, uh, speaks Ar- uh, Arabic, and uh, she spent time out in Little Palestine uh, in November and the first part of uh, December uh, talking to people getting to know shop, the shop owners, activists, and various other people. And, and again, wrote this beautiful cover story for our December, January print edition. I spoke with, uh, Laura Noor recently and we talked about, uh, some of what she discovered out in Little Palestine. We didn't have a chance to talk about everything that's in the article, but of course you can get a copy of the independent, whether from one of our boxes by going to our, um, our website at independent.org, signing up to become a subscriber. You'll get every issue of the paper so you can read articles like this one by Laura Noor Walton. But anyway, let's listen to what uh, Laura Noor Walton had to say about some of her explorations in Little Palestine. Laura Noor Walton, welcome to the Independent News Hour and congratulations on your fantastic cover story in our new issue. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure as well. So you, you start in the, in the very beginning of your, uh, your article about kind of how it's this special place. So when you arrive out in little Palestine, out in Bay Ridge, uh, there in South Brooklyn, uh, can you just talk a little bit uh, about that, that kind of uh, sensibility you felt and, and why you felt uh, at home there in a way you, you maybe don't uh, in other parts yeah. of the city? 
Absolutely. So I think one of the most sort of like indicative statements about Bay Ridge that um, I got during an interview is from Abdullah, who is uh, affiliated with Within Our Lifetime. And he said that Bay Ridge is sort of the closest that so many Arabs can can get to home. And so I really want to start the piece with a few visions of Bay Ridge that seem like really kind of out of place in New York City, but very, very Middle Eastern, very like distinctly Middle Eastern. Like you have people sitting outside of establishments and drinking tea, uh, older men. And that's kind of a phenomenon in the Middle East. Like you have these gatherings of old men drinking tea and hanging out with their buddies. Um, you have people wearing their hijabs down the street, people wearing their kafiyas down the street, um, which to feel safe doing that in New York, especially after like October 7th, I think I think because Bay Ridge produces that sort of haven for people to express themselves or be authentically themselves, authentically Arab um, is very indicative of Bay Ridge as well. And so, yeah, I just want to start my piece with like a few of those sites, um, even like children walking down the street and peppering Arabic statements into their English. I thought was like really fascinating because you just simply don't really see that outside of a place like Bay Ridge. And so just to sort of paint a picture of what that neighborhood is like, especially from like an Arab American perspective, um, cause I'm yes. Egyptian American. So Laura, no, uh, let's go on a little uh, tour of the neighborhood and some of the places that uh, you visited, uh, starting with the Al Aqsa, uh, uh, bakery and its, uh, owner, uh, Mahmoud Kasim. Yes. So, um, right. Basically, I, the first time that I came to Bay Ridge, I was a little bit lost. I didn't really know who to talk to. And I stopped into a store alongside Amba, um, to go pick up a kafia for Amba. And we just happened to ask the, the man behind the cash register, like, who should we talk to? in the neighborhood and immediately he said Mahmoud Kasim because this man is very vocal about his positions on Palestine and he's not media shy which uh reporting this story was quite difficult because you had a lot of people who were reluctant to speak to the media and so um he guided me he kind of shepherded us towards um an Aqsa bakery and restaurant and the second that someone that one walks into an Aqsa bakery and restaurant, they see like this big picture of Shirin Abu Akleh, who is the Palestinian journalist who was killed by an Israeli sniper in 2021. Um, and you see these golden scimitars that are crisscrossing each other and a passage from the Quran and family photos of Kasim's. Um, and that's just the second that you walk in, like immediately, you know that you're like, in a in an establishment that wants to wants to sort of tell you something about the ownership and and where the ownership stands um and so yeah i i knew that we'd entered into the right into the right place um mahmoud actually wasn't available for a while when i first entered into an aqsa and so i sat in the back and basically the people behind the counter um, who were preparing the food, uh, couldn't speak much English. And so we were sort of speaking to each other in Arabic and they very generously in true Middle Eastern fashion offered me snacks as I waited for Mahmoud to come. And then when Mahmoud came, he was so excited to speak and he had so much to say. And 
It was a bit of a chaotic reporting experience because he was switching topics and he seemed really <laughs> just excited and he had so much to say and he was bursting with energy. And also at the same time, this is like uh, a family owned establishment and, um, and he was on the phone with his children who were fighting each other and hitting each other back home. And he was trying to like be the mediator between them. And so it was just sort of a funny, uh, a funny experience reporting, but also yeah, you really wouldn't get that at a, like would... a corporate uh, chain grocery store. No way, no way. <laughs> it was just, it was so, it was very entertaining. Um, and I also happened to talk to him on the day that there was a within our lifetime um, protest, and so they were actually coming. They were rounding the corner during one of our like interviews. And, uh, he, when the people in the kitchen started to like announce their arrival, um, he ran into the kitchen and away from the interview and away from the recording. And I was just like, standing there with my phone out, like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And he wrapped, uh, like a kafia around it or like a Palestinian flag kafia hybrid scarf thing around his head and, um, turned on Palestinian music and then went outside and like watched the, protesters come and so he just he didn't want to talk anymore he wanted to go and cheer on the protesters and so i definitely thought that was uh yeah that was sort of what made him so unique like he's very much um Im immersed in the neighborhood happenings and also is really interested in um exhibiting solidarity through his establishment for palestine right now there's other uh, uh businesses there that are are more reticent. You you visited a, a, a pine nut uh, shop where the owner said, of course, I support the cause, but I, I'm not going to be uh, out front about it in, the, in that same way. Yeah, I visited this nut roastery that, um, yeah, it, it, it sells these mixed nuts, which are actually like a Palestinian sort of snack. And they're quite common around the Middle East. And the the store is owned by people from Ramallah, from Palestine. But um, I think the fact that there were people who, like, as you said, were more reticent about talking or about, you know, like they said, pushing the Palestinian agenda onto their clientele just shows the diversity in opinion of people living in Bay Ridge. Um, people choose to sort of navigate their Palestinian identities in very different ways. And there's no one right or wrong way or more authentic way to be Palestinian. Like everyone is very different. And so, um, well, I think a lot of the establishments in Bay Ridge are putting Palestinian flags in their windows or um, like selling different products with, you know, an Aqsa mosque like painted on them. Um, they're not necessarily going to be as pro-Palestine as um, an Aqsa bakery and restaurant. Um, so that's that's for sure true. And another place you visited, uh, uh, Ballady Market. Tell us about mm -hmm. about this venue. Um, Ballady Market is, I think it's more corporate than the roastery and um, Mahmoud's restaurant in the sense that like I couldn't really find like a, a singular owner or like I, I didn't actually know whether or not it was Palestinian owned until I spoke to a few people. Um, but 
Yeah, it's it's one of the most epic <laughs> like Arabic Arab grocery stores I've ever been to. It just has every single product you could possibly imagine from the Middle East. Um it seems like everybody working there is from the Middle East, but um yeah, you also have more of in my opinion a mixed clientele. I spoke to Mahmoud and also the owner of the roastery about, you know, like who patronizes their establishments and they said that it's a real mix of people. But for from my personal observations, and maybe it was just the day that I went to Bay Ridge and talked to them, uh, it seemed like most of the people who were coming to those stores were of Arab descent. Um, and they were speaking Arabic with the people behind the counter. But when you go into Benadi market, you have a real mix of people, people who just seem to be like random Brooklyn residents who aren't necessarily uh, from the Middle East, and then also a huge amount of people from the Middle East who are clearly buying food that you know they grew up with, and so um, and those shelves I think are that's sort stacked. Of, they are stacked, you, and that's you, also something if you get a hard copy of the paper. You can see some of the photos. Uh, it, yeah, <laughs> that place is loaded. Yeah, definitely, um, I, that's very that's very common in the middle east to have these like really grandiose displays of uh food and grocery stores so like lots of different cans stacked up on top of each like uh, on, on top of each other are it's like kind of an uncommon display i'd say in the us in the sense that it's like super precarious and like i think most people are like that's a terrible idea um but in Beladi market uh it, it you you have like these pyramids of fava beans and green beans and just a bunch of different cans stacked onto each other and then also this like olive buffet situation where you can put all these different types of olives into uh containers and take them home with you and uh, i really liked that as well um but yeah every product you could possibly imagine from the region I went searching for my favorites and they were all there and that was super exciting for me. And you mentioned in your article uh, a Baladi uh, market and 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 an adjacent uh, store they run uh mm-hmm. just the smells of um uh, of, of the products uh, kind of transported you back yes. to your own uh, uh girlhood growing up in Cairo. Can you talk about that Absolutely. a little bit? Absolutely. There's an adjoining home decor store. And um, the second I walked in, I almost got emotional because it, it really did smell like my great grandmother's apartment when I was growing up. Like, especially on Fridays, we'd burn the holy day. We'd burn incense in the house and it would smell exactly like that. And I it, it really did transport me. I said it in the piece that, you know, it transported me back to these intergenerational apartments that I grew up in. And um, I bought I bought some bahud for myself and I've been burning it in my room and it's been just making me so happy. And so, yeah, um, they have a really nice home decor store right next door to the actual grocer um, that doesn't just sell incense. They sell a lot of different ornate teapot sets and uh and decorative tchotchkes but yeah nice. what really struck me was the incense yeah <laughs> and, and this area we're talking about is roughly it's on like mostly like fifth avenue sort of uh, from the 60s up into the 80s correct yeah precisely all of these establishments that we've been talking about have been located on fifth avenue yeah and uh uh, uh another one uh that that's 
fairly well known is uh, a restaurant, Ayat. Mm-hmm. Ayat, I think, is actually the most well known restaurant in Bay Ridge. Um, it is featured in the Michelin Guide and also in the New York Times, and it's gotten kind of a lot of attention since October seventh because the restaurant was sort of bombarded with these bad reviews uh, by people who the owner said had never been to her restaurant before. Uh, just basically people who wanted to tank this Palestinian restaurant because they viewed October 7th as being something, you know, unforgivable. And so basically ra- uh, racist uh, attacks on this <laughs> restaurant. Yeah, I would say racist attacks on the restaurant. Um, and But there was sort of this reactionary um, counter movement where people would be going to the restaurant specifically to support um, Ayat's ownership and also to, uh, yeah, counteract those bad reviews. And so uh, definitely people were noticing that uh, that people were, were flooding the restaurant with bad reviews and wanted to sort of create some kind of bulwark against that and to really ensure that Ayat can remain a popular spot. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. That was Laura Nor Walton uh, talking about her cover story about the Little Palestine neighborhood in southern Brooklyn. If you want to read her full cover story, you can pick up a copy of the Independent at one of our outdoor news boxes in more than 60 public libraries or other public venues or go to independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. Just as we want you to support uh, WBAI, please consider supporting the independent as well. Uh, and just want to, um, before we have to sign off here in another minute, let you know there's more great shows coming up on WBAI this evening. Democracy Now! Half Hour Edition uh, following in a few minutes from 6 to 6.30. Interpersonal Update with Harriet Fraud Wolf from 6.30 to 7 p.m. Revolutions Per Minute, the uh, show of the New York City chapter of uh, Democratic Socialists of America from 7 to 8 p.m. Out FM from 8 to 9 p.m. Cat Radio Cafe from 9 to 10 p.m. And The Sweet Spot from 10 p.m. till midnight. And I uh, want to uh, thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, as well as uh, uh, Amber Gagarin, who made all our musical selections uh, for tonight's show, as she does for every show. Our final song for tonight is... Dami Palestini, or My Blood is Palestinian by Muhammad Asif, a Palestinian, it's a Palestinian liberation song that often graces the streets of Bay Ridge.